Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. For many years, the historical critical quest for reconstructing the origin and development of the Pentateuch or Hexateuch has coalesced around the documentary hypothesis, the heuristic power of which has produced a consensus so strong that an interpreter who did not operate within its framework was hardly regarded as a scholar. However, the relentless march of research has continued to bring new and refined analyses, data, methodological tools, and criticism. Join us as we speak with Dr. Roy E. Gain about the book Exploring the Composition of the Pentateuch, a volume that investigates new ideas about the composition of the Pentateuch arising from careful analysis of the biblical text against its ancient Near Eastern background. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Roy Gain is professor of Hebrew Bible and Ancient Near Eastern Languages at Andrews University in Berean Springs, Michigan. He contributed a chapter and wrote the introduction for Exploring the Composition of the Pentateuch, and he's published many other works, including Cult and Character, Purification Offerings, Day of Atonement, and Theodicy, and also the NIV Application Commentary for Leviticus and Numbers. Roy, welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies. Thank you. Good to be here with you. Roy, tell us about yourself. How long have you been working in the Pentateuch, and what first sparked your interest in this part of the Bible? Uh, Originally, I went to study at the University of California, Berkeley, to learn Hebrew after being an undergraduate at Pacific Union College in California, and I had no interest whatsoever in Leviticus, which turned out to be my specialty, uh, Torah, Pentateuch. Uh, What I was interested in was prophets and psalms. I wanted to, to learn more about the prophets because I love their literature, and I was curious about the nature of the prophecies. I was interested in psalms because I'd been a piano performance major and was interested in music composition, and I wanted to be able to translate psalms into a more uh, regular meter so that I could set it to music for congregational singing, uh, sort of like the bass altar, but um, updated a lot. And so... Um, and, of course, with more natural flow of language rather than sort of bending the English. Anyway, so that's why I went to study Hebrew. And um, when I got there, I discovered that my major professor, the um, the Hebrew Bible teacher in the Near Eastern Studies Department at UC Berkeley, was Jacob Milgram. And when I learned that his specialty was Leviticus, my heart sank. I was very uh, depressed about that. But I thought, I'll hang in there and maybe I can learn some Hebrew and then I can apply it to the other things that I'm really interested in. So I stuck in there, but he hijacked me. Um, I I got so interested in Leviticus, and it's not because he was a really charismatic, energetic teacher. He was charismatic in a quiet way, but not in the sense like, uh, for example, Shalom Paul, who is very vigorous and that kind of thing, uh, with whom I studied at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem later. But Milgram is very quiet and um, just let us think, and there were long pauses, and so on and so forth. But it was so fascinating to see how everything fit together. 
First, we were in the book of Numbers and then the book of Leviticus and uh, spent a lot, a lot of time on Leviticus. Um, as you know, he did the Anchor Bible Commentary on that, and he was working on that at the time. And so um, I remember one class period, we spent two and a half hours not on a Hebrew chapter or verse or clause or phrase or word, but one Hebrew letter, a preposition bet <laughs> in Leviticus 17, 11. And we didn't resolve the, the issue. So, I mean, that was an extreme, but we were going through it very, very slowly with students who had command of a dozen or more languages. And so we'd be working through the, um, the, the text, looking at the history of the literature and what um, possible solutions there were for the different issues that came up. And very often, Milgram, after we had gone through the ancient uh, versions and the, uh, the Qumran material and the rabbinic material and the uh, medieval Jewish commentators and the modern commentators, we didn't really have a solution to a particular issue. I remember this happening several times. And then Milgram would just show that within the biblical text itself, the answer was really there and the scripture interpreted itself. And so I got very excited about that. Uh, very interested, and I could see this system of interconnected, uh, cohesive uh, concepts regarding God and his plan of salvation. And so I would be driving home uh, an hour and a half from his house late at night, because uh, his seminar was once a week in his house. I'd be driving home in my 62 Ford Falcon, um, shouting and banging on the steering wheel, because I was so excited uh, about this. So uh, he, he really got me very interested in Leviticus, and that's become my a scholarly specialty. You wrote the introduction to this collection of essays on the composition of the Pentateuch. How did the idea for this book come about? Yes, in the introduction uh, to the book, I talk about how in 2014, I believe it is, if I get the date correctly, I was um, in an Ugaritic class with uh, some students, a very small class, because not that many students want to take Ugaritic but these two very serious students in the summer of 2014, uh, Kenneth Berglund, one of the editors of this book, and Felipe Massati. Now, Berglund is from Norway. Massati is from Brazil. We have a very, very diverse international group of students here. But these were two really brilliant students, very interested in ancient languages and how the text is put together and so on. And so as we were reading Ugaritic texts, they saw, and I saw, we were looking at this together, that um, there were some aspects of the text that looked like what you you could if you were a historical uh, source critic, if you were a historical critical source critic for the uh, for the Pentateuch, you could make an argument that these could be multiple strands of authorship. But it's in an ancient Ugaritic epic. Now, how how could this be? Um, were there was there a JEDP in the Ugaritic uh, <laughs> authorship? Uh, tradition of what's going on here. So they were curious about that. And as a result, then they started something called the Torah group. And that, um, that fall, uh, a few months after that, and they got with other PhD students and some faculty members and so on, and also connecting with others from other places in the world, including even the Philippines. And uh, we have, a, there's the Adventist in International Institute of Advanced Studies in the Philippines. So connecting with people in various parts of the world uh, to hash through the different issues. And it, it's a very complex kind of a thing, as they realized. And it's a multidisciplinary kind of area of uh, research. And so they involve linguists and archaeologists and historians and uh, text people and so on and so forth. Well, the next 
uh, fall it was in, was it 2015? Yes, 2015. Um, Berglund and Misati and I were in another class together. This time it was Hittite. And we were studying Hittite laws. And that um, furthered the, the interest. How are these laws put together? We could, we could see different levels of explicit composition um, in the Hittite laws because there were later uh, changes to the laws that were made and so on. And these are really documented. And so how does that relate? So out of this and the Torah group uh, grew the interest of putting together a conference. And so these uh, these people, Berglund and Asati and then some others, uh, Scotty Baker, who is an archaeology PhD student, and he's finished now. Uh, Ms., uh, Kenneth Berglund is finished also with his PhD, but Rahel Wells is a text person and uh, with her degree from uh, Wheaton. And so they got together the idea of a Torah conference uh, to discuss this issue of the composition of the Pentateuch. So, um, of course, I was delighted that they were interested in doing this and at their uh, get up and go. And uh, so we did. We have a Torah conference, and that was the basis of this book. Now, this book is not just the, the whole project. The project is much bigger than this book because we did hold the conference in 2016. But then the idea was put together to have a, a conference every two years. So we did have a conference in 2018, and another volume is coming out of that one. It's in the process of being edited. And we planned to have a conference in 2020. We had the date, everything was all set, and then COVID hit, so we couldn't do it. And the folks involved really didn't want to do it at a distance, uh, just by Zoom. They wanted to just put it off, maybe 2021, until we can get uh, together. So the, um, the group of scholars, though, that were pulled together for this book are from five continents in terms of their origin um, and from uh, a number of different countries, of course, and they involve evangelical scholars, a number of people from here at Andrews University, but others from uh, other places, Trinity and Wheaton and others, and um, a Catholic scholar and a Jewish scholar. So it's really, we're trying to reach out to a broad base. And in fact, the next conference, we're going to have more Jewish scholars involved and uh, it's becoming even more uh, diverse like that. So the thing that we have in common is all of us are curious. We're curious about how this works. And of course, it's been under debate for two centuries. The whole idea of the composition of the Pentateuch, um, getting into, of course, the crystallization of the documentary hypothesis with um, Graf and Wellhausen, particularly Wellhausen, and um, 19th century German approach to um, to uh, source criticism, and then the development of redaction, source uh, reform criticism, tradition criticism, and all the rest of it. Um, and what we have in common among the people involved in this project is that we think that the the criticism needs to be criticized. Uh, it needs to be, we, we need to critique everything. And are there better ways of looking at things? And we're interested in criticizing it not because we happen to be a, a fundamentalist bunch of, um, you, you know, people who are trying to put science down. For one thing, we're not fundamentalist. Um, and for another thing, we are interested in good science of text rather than just starting with assumptions that rule out possibilities. We want to leave the possibilities open. But the, 
the crucial areas of uh, research that we're into, we're looking at coherence of texts. And we did a lot with that in our 2018 conference, but there's some in here. Coherence of texts, uh, because some of the main reasons why scholars divide uh, Torah texts and other biblical texts into different sources is on the basis of disjunctions, what they perceive to be differences, disjunctions, or reduplications or apparent contradictions uh, in text. So they say these really didn't fit together. We have a seam here between two different uh, portions of text. And what we've discovered and are in the process of trying to work with is that rather than imposing modern Western uh, approaches to uh, literary coherence upon a group of ancient texts, we need to find out what did literary coherence mean for ancient people. And so we're looking at scribal practices. We're looking at other documents, Mesopotamia, Egypt, and so on, and, um, and, and Hittite, of course, looking at the question of what did coherence mean to them? And what we're discovering is that it, it wasn't exactly the same as what it means to us. So that it doesn't really rule out, there are pretty clear cases of ancient texts that have unity of authorship, or at least there's no evidence that they don't, uh, and yet they have um, a, a development of of tradition, particularly in canonical texts. You get Atrahasis and Gilgamesh, Etana, um, even the Temple Scroll we see development, and so on, from how it's put together. The text itself gives some indications of that. So rather than start with a set of criteria that we then impose on the text and say, it has to be coherent, and we use our logic to sort of separate it up. Let's look at the ancient texts, compare them with the biblical texts, look at the literary structure of the biblical texts and the scribal tradition and um, an empirical kind of approach that, you know, Tige wrote on that, and also um, Josh Berman has worked on that and so on. An empirical approach looking at what is the evidence that is really empirical data in the ancient Near East that is literary and historical, archaeological and so on, that we can then look at the text and, and, and get answers. And one of the interesting um, papers and now um, essays in this volume was discovering that, um, in fact, it was written by one of our students. It was written by Scotty Baker and Rahel Wells, who's a faculty member here in the undergraduate school. And what they found is in, in Egyptian texts, you can have multiple uh, phases of the language uh, in the same text represented in the same texts so that you get, it's very difficult to say that because there's a certain stage of language here, and this is dated to a certain period, that therefore we have another kind or phase of the language alongside of it, say Exodus 15, you know, Song of the Sea, which is generally regarded as very early Hebrew poetry. Um, you get this next to the rest of the text, and it it doesn't mean that they are not different periods. It doesn't mean that they're not different sources. But the fact that they are there in close proximity doesn't prove that either, because in ancient Near Eastern texts, you could have that kind of phenomenon um, in place, where there are reasons for selecting different phases of the language, just like we use sometimes archaic language to make a point. Even sometimes when, uh, particularly some older people, when they pray, they pray in King James Version English, right? You've probably heard that too. Your essay is chapter 11. It's entitled, 
Was Leviticus composed by Aaronite priests to justify their cultic monopoly? Can you tell us where that question comes from and how you respond to it in your essay? This question comes from my friend James Watts. And um, he has written uh, about this ritual and rhetoric in Leviticus from Sacrifice to Scripture. He published that in 2007. And uh, Jim and I are, are very good friends. We have very different approaches to the composition of the Pentateuch. He um, believes that it's late Persian period and so on. Uh, so he's very much with the sort of the more traditional scholarly consensus in that regard. Although these days, of course, there's a lot of variety in terms of the, uh, the way scholars approach the documentary hypothesis. People talk about P or H or uh, J-E and so on. They mean uh, quite different things in some respects. So in any case, in Ritual and Rhetoric in Leviticus, James Watts argued for, his main point was that the purpose of Leviticus 1 to 16, so he's looking at the so-called P or priestly section of Leviticus, uh, the purpose of this was to establish the authority of the priests and their monopoly over the cult. So it's a priestly hierarchy. And this was uh, finally put in place. It was actuated and fulfilled during the Second Temple period. Now, he's, he's careful uh, not to say that, therefore, Leviticus had to be composed, or Leviticus 1 to 16 composed during the Second Temple period. But that's the period uh, which was when things were actually done and fulfilled. So it could have been written at any time previously to that. Um, but the main point is that it was written by priests for priests. And it was to convince the uh, other people that they should respect the priests and, and of course, bring their perquisites or prebends uh, so that from their sacrifices there were priestly portions that the priests would get, and that all benefited the priests. Now, I uh, wrote an, an article in response to that, an essay in the Festrift that, well, it was really a memorial volume for Jacob Milgram, which I edited with Ada Tiger Cohen, and that was in, I think, 2015, if I'm not, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and um, so the Milgram Memorial Volume, and I wrote a, a piece called Didactic Logic in Leviticus. And so my point was that whereas uh, Yes, the legacy of Jacob Milgram and beyond. Uh, it's current issues in priestly and related literature, the legacy of Jacob Milgram and beyond, edited by uh, Roy Gain and Ada Tiger Cohen. And so in my essay, Didactic Logic of Leviticus, I was pointing out that whereas Watts says that the, the purpose of Leviticus 1 to 16 is persuasion uh, for the purpose of benefiting the priests, and he asked the question, uh, who stood to benefit by this work? And therefore, he assumed that that was going to be the author. Um, and I discovered by analyzing the same texts that really the purpose of this was didactic. It's to teach. Yes, persuasive, and persuasive to teach that this is the right kind of way to go. Um, but I discovered that it was not really uh, to establish a priestly monopoly. In fact, in some respects, it's quite crit critical of the priests. I mean, you have, for example, Nadab and Abihu, who, um, uh, when the whole cult was being inaugurated, they um, used unauthorized fire, and they were slain by God. 
other aspects also. In Leviticus chapter 16, God warns Aaron after the death of Nadab and Abihu, be very careful when you go into the uh, Holy of Holies once a year because you got to do it the right way or else you'll die. And so it's clear that the, um, the, the target audience, those who are being re- regulated and restricted and instructed, are the priests as well as the other people. And what I found were about, I think, 10 different indicators of rhetorical uh, or rather didactic strategies. They're rhetorical, but they're didactic, literary strategies, uh, ways that you teach people. Building on previous information um, and sometimes abbreviating and doing various other things, various strategies that we all use as teachers. (laughs) And so this then led me to the conclusion in that uh, piece that the authorship of Leviticus was probably not priestly, but rather prophetic. Uh, We have here in the narrative framework of Leviticus, it's Moses who is receiving the messages from God, except a few times Aaron or Aaron and Moses. So it's really Moses in in the function of a prophet, not as a priest, who's telling the priest what to do. Now, in this piece, in this book, now, um, I built on that and pointed out that the idea of priestly monopoly is not something that is in the foreground in Leviticus, and you expect that the foreground information is the thrust, the purpose of a composition, right? But it's assumed, it's in the background. And this is assumed for the book of Exodus, that the priests are going to be in charge, and so on. And furthermore, the idea of priests having a monopoly and having perquisites and prebends, that is not established by Leviticus. That is just well known in the ancient Near East. That's the function of priests. And priests always get uh, prebends and things that they live on. For example, in the text from Amar, I believe it is, is the installation of the storm god's high priestess, if I'm remembering correctly, the, the high priestess um, text there. And she is assigned her yearly allowance that she's going to get uh, really quite a bit of food and other kinds of things every year. And that's really the way priesthood works in the ancient years. It's just part of the definition of priesthood. So it doesn't have to be established by Leviticus. That's one thing. And then furthermore, the idea of cultic control by the priests, is that waiting until the second temple period? And the answer is no, because you already have it in First Samuel with the sons of uh, Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. They clearly have a monopoly and control. Now, they're abusing it, that's true, but they have that kind of control uh, at that time. So that really undermines the idea, then, that you're really waiting for this control until the Second Temple period. And um, then there's other evidence for early authority uh, in First Samuel and so on. But then, at the end, I tackle the problem of pseudonymous authorship of Leviticus. Because, according to Watts, Leviticus is pseudonymous, written by Moses, but Moses is really um, not the author. It was priests who used a very well-known character, and they put it in the mouth of Moses, so it's really fictitious authorship. Just the way in the Second Temple period, very commonly, you have the Testament of Abraham, or the Testament of Levi, and so on, uh, or the books of Enoch, and they would write compositions and put them in the mouths of very, very ancient people, whom everybody knew about, and it would give greater authority uh, to the book. People would listen to it. 
And so um, uh, is that what's going on in Leviticus here? And then I raised some questions, uh, problems with that. One of the problems is that when you have pseudonymous authorship, you always want to have your composition based on something that's very well known, right? However, if, uh, as many scholars say, the book of Leviticus originated in exilic or post-exilic times, okay, and, and Moses is pseudonymous, but Moses is the one in the Pentateuch and the, the Torah, which is exilic or post-exilic, what sense does it make to have Moses be the, the pseudonymous author if he's not established by history? You have to have some kind of tradition of someone being famous for pseudonymity to work. And it's not going to work if the Torah, with all the information about Moses, is so late. And now you're talking about, oh, this guy, famous guy Moses. Oh, well, he's the one right here in these books that are late. No, it doesn't work. Pseudonymity doesn't work that way. Furthermore, I question the issue of uh, ruling out the historicity of Moses. Because um, that's what many uh, scholars do. They, they won't even consider the possibility that there really was a historical Moses. And I'm not saying that we have proof that there was Moses. Um, we know that we do not have any autographs from the text that he wrote. We don't have any, um, any, any say, statues of him like we do of Judea in Sumer, uh, those kinds of things that really would date him in that way. But as Kenneth Kitchen pointed out, the characteristics of whoever the author is of these Pentateuchal books has to be someone from the Nile Delta region at a certain period who understood international treaties. He also is fully conversant with uh, Hebrew lore and logic and tradition and so on and so forth. And Kenneth Kitchen says this wonderful line. Uh, he says, in other words, um, we, need, we need somebody distressingly like the old hero of biblical tradition, Moses, is badly needed at this point. In other words, if there were not historical Moses, we would have to have somebody just like him. <laughs> okay, so um, these are uh, various kinds of arguments. Furthermore, when you come to um, Gudea, now Gudea was uh, about 2100 BC. He was the NC or the governor of Lagash uh, in southern Mesopotamia. And historians of ancient Mesopotamia do not doubt the existence of Gudea. Okay, and they don't doubt the existence of uh, a lot of other prophets. Now, Gudea claims in his cylinders in Sumerian to have received revelations from his god, Ningirsu, instructing him to build a sanctuary, a temple, which he did for Ningirsu and his consort, Baba. Okay, Moses also received instructions from his deity. Oh, but that's got to be legend. That's got to be fiction. So we're going to believe Gudea, but we're not going to believe Moses. Oh, is that really uh, consistent? You see? In other words, um, it's true that we can't, we don't have the evidence for Moses like we do for Gedea, uh, say cylinders that are dated to that period, or uh, statues of Moses like we do of Gedea, those diorite statues that we've, we've seen. We don't have anything like that, but there are a number of reasons why we don't have the original autographs, the original evidence. Because, for one thing, very few copies. It's in parchment, which is all subject to fire and decay and everything. And then when we find in uh, the historical books, in the Bible, we find Hilkiah, the high priest, in the reign of Josiah, and he finds, oh, wow, lo and behold, we've got the, the book of the law. So it was very rare, and for these various reasons, and therefore we can 
we can explain why there would be paucity of evidence. It makes good sense. So for these and other reasons, there are other reasons as well. I just um, refuse to rule out on scientific grounds the possibility of um, Moses. I, I say at the end of the chapter to acknowledge the uncertainty of excluding the possibility that Leviticus 1 to 16 was authored by a historical Moses functioning as a prophet is not to adopt unscholarly credulous faith and tradition over true critical scholarly science. This uncertainty is simply a matter of fact and logic, objectively acknowledging the limits of available historical evidence regarding a canonical ancient Near Eastern composition. A dating canonical compositions in the ancient Near East is notoriously difficult. Uh, for example, if you look at ancient Near Eastern texts edited by Pritchard, 3rd edition, Princeton, 1969, and you look there under the um, schedule for the New Year's Festival in Babylon, you see that it's reconstructed from Seleucid-era texts. These are very late texts in the Greek period, after Babylon no longer has hegemony over the area. And Seleucid texts, and yet there's a footnote there in Pritchard's volume, and it says, this likely reflects much earlier practices and customs. Okay, So there's canonical texts that have been copied and recopied and recopied. And so when you read about this, you can't assume that because the tablets themselves are clearly Seleucid era, that those practices and those texts were originated in that period, because there was a very, very long canonical tradition. The same is true with the biblical text. Before we let you go, Roy, would you like to highlight some of the other chapters in this volume of essays? I could highlight all of them. Um, <laughs> I've just gone over, uh, in fact, today, just to review for, for this, the introductions and conclusions to refresh my memory, because I heard them all and I've read them all, but um, just to refresh my memory. But Hess's, for example, is pointing out that there's an inscription that's been sort of neglected by scholars from Hebron. Hebron is where, of course, Abraham is buried, Cave of Machpelah, and it's um, it's in from the territory of Judah. It's in the south. Uh, there are very few texts uh, outside the Bible from this area. And yet, looking at this text, which Hess does, he analyzes it and finds that there are significant similarities with the time frame of Abraham. And of course, this text can be dated. Uh, and the kinds of animals that they have, the kinds of rulership that's in the surrounding area, this text is sort of formulaic with lists, and scholars have assumed that um, this kind of information was generally carried on by oral tradition, and that there couldn't have been writing in this area, it all had to be oral, and Hess is pointing out, no, here we have a text which is very early, showing that there's no reason why uh, someone like Moses couldn't have been writing this kind of stuff, and there couldn't have been written records, and why it couldn't have been a formulaic. So, what we're looking at in this volume is we're not we're not uh, finding proof okay but what we're doing is finding uh, models of different ways that things could have happened other than the 19th century and following uh, kind of source criticism and now neo-documentarianism which is uh, resurrecting and you know refining um, JEDP and H and so on and so forth by like Joel Baden and Jeffrey Stacker and so on so we're questioning those things based upon, in this case, empirical data, which is discovered by archaeology. And here we have a text with that kind of information. Now, one thing about the authorship, what I mentioned before about the authorship of Moses, we're not saying by any means, none of us, none of us are claiming that Moses 
wrote the entire Pentateuch. It's very clear that the Pentateuch is a compiled uh, group of documents and that uh, there's editing going on and there's likely updating of language and so on. So, but it's that Moses could have been the primary could have been the primary author. And the authors in this volume have differing approaches about some things. I mean, how close do we get to the idea of thinking that really it was Moses or maybe it was just pre-exilic? Um, what is the nature of uh, law in biblical times? And, for example, Josh Berman points out it's not like our statutory law. It was more like common law. But then Daniel Block says, well, to some extent, uh, the Ten Commandments, for example, and other things look a bit more like statutory law, so there could have been sort of a spectrum over that. And then Kenneth Berglund, one of the, uh, really who has been the spearhead of this whole thing, um, Kenneth Berglund suggests that it's really covenantal, normative covenantal instruction is the key idea of how to characterize the law, the, the, the legal portions. And so we have some some differences and nuances, and, and that's okay. We're just kind of hashing it out. So we're not trying to shut down discussion with this. We're trying to open up discussion, but we're trying to open it up in ways that have been uh, not opened up so much in the past. Do you have any other publications on the horizon? Well, in terms of, um, there is a 2018 uh, conference volume that is the successor to this that's coming out. And particularly, there's quite a, uh, a big emphasis there in the question of what constitutes literary cohesion or coherence. And so we have a number of presentations on those issues. So we're pursuing some things that we couldn't get to here and and so on. Um, in terms of, you're asking about my own personal yes. publications? Yes. Ah, okay. Well, I've been working on uh, Leviticus, putting together a lot of material for Leviticus, and I, and I hope to be, I'm still working on nailing down a publisher for that, but I hope to publish a, a commentary uh, on that. And I've been working on a number of other uh, projects involving uh, art, article projects and things like that. Uh, I'm very interested in questions such as the transfer of sin in uh, Leviticus. How does it get to the sanctuary so that it needs to be removed? And of course, I addressed that in my cult and character several years ago. But then there's been pushback by some scholars uh, on that. And, um, and I have more information. I've been studying more on that. So I'd like to do some writing on that, maybe put together a monograph on that sometime we'll see and so um it's just an ongoing wonderful exploration uh, jacob milgram got me off to a start and i know that you're involved in a commentary uh, right now and it's very challenging uh putting this together there's never an end to it it's a messy process and uh so there's a question of what do we put in what do we leave out how do we emphasize it? how do we make it interesting to modern people and practical for their benefit particularly for those who really regard uh scripture take it seriously it's not just a game it, it is from god we believe and uh of course the issue of moses and the authorship of the pentateuch which touches your work and my work the the question of moses is the authority of the pentateuch because if as scripture claims and, and the whole narrative structure of the pentateuch claims uh that moses received revelations from god then as it claims, this is like the voice of God. I mean, God could have spoken directly, but the people were afraid. And, and so they said, Moses, you go up and hear what God has to say. And so God told Moses and Moses told them as if it was God directly speaking to them. And so we have this in the, in the Pentateuchal narrative. 
I prefer to work with that in understanding the theology of the Pentateuch within its own narrative framework, the way it wants to be understood, okay, um, rather than inventing or adopting an, an entirely different, speculative, fictitious narrative framework that's been adopted by um, uh, modern scholars. I prefer to, to stay with what a text says about itself. I think that's more valid, sticking with the data. Now, whether a person wants to agree with that or not, in other words, whether they want to believe that, that God spoke to Moses or not, that's up to them. But at least let's work with the theology of the Pentateuch such that we interpret it in light of it believes, the Pentateuch, the authorship believes that that's what happened. And so I should understand that in terms of what it's presenting about itself. Now, I do personally believe that because I accept uh, the Torah as God's word, uh, but I think that's a more scientific approach. And not only more scientific, I think that it puts us on a much more solid ground for getting guidance in modern world, navigating through all the complexities and the pitfalls of, of our lives. We see principles that, that are in the Torah. And I've written about those in my book, Old Testament Law for Christians, which principles in the Torah that are so wise and helpful for modern people, if we would just listen to them. And then, of course, we have to realize that those principles come to us dressed in examples and applications that are in ancient Near Eastern dress. But we have to interpret, we have to look and see within that framework, we have to find out what are they really trying to say uh, to us. And there is so much more. And my life is being enriched and enhanced and made more, more peaceful and more effective as a result of digging into those things. And I think that can happen for other people as well. Roy, as always, it's been a joy spending time in your company. Thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Michael, for the invitation. All right, friends, you've been listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.